The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. Hi, before we get things underway, uh, we're going to do a very sincere, very earnest, heartfelt cash call. Um, as you may have picked up, the three of us are furloughed in the wake of coronavirus. A lot of people are furloughed in the wake of, wake of coronavirus. Uh, David and I both work in music and Mark likes music, <laughs> <laughs> but is also furloughed. So really, I think what we're hoping is that the time we spend in the podcast... We, we just can't afford to have money going out on the podcast, so we're really asking sincerely if people will maybe invest uh, in the Patreon just now. It's a really, really key time for us to do it, to be able to keep things going, because we're going to have to start figuring out what we're going to do for the rest of the year, uh, if furloughs aren't going to continue, and so on. Uh, it would be amazing if this didn't cost us money. If we were able to take anything for our time, fantastic. I don't see that happening. Uh, but if you do find yourself sitting about with wages coming in and you're not going to the pub if you're willing to buy us the equivalent of one pint a month that'd be fantastic uh, guys what's the best address yep patreon.com forward slash unsung pod and you can see all of our uh, tiers there all the things you can get uh, we've actually finished so many tiers. our custom made <laughs> t-shirts um, and they look horrific and awesome at the same time so if you've got a little bit extra to spare you can definitely throw some money on that tier if you're feeling a bit flush but there's other cool things as well we're working through like everything else at the moment because we've got an abundance of free time so yeah we will be meeting our our quotas <laughs> yeah we're going to arrange for some testimonials because the people that we've had to make t-shirts for I think even we were surprised at how brilliant they turned out and yeah. uh, they're bound to turn some heads once they start rocking them out in public once public's a thing that we do again but yeah this would be an amazing time if you're so inclined to go to our Patreon and to just sign up for the equivalent of like a decent priced pint a month uh, cumulatively that'll really give us a little bit of a safety net and save us having to work worry about how we're going to cover quite a lot of things <laughs> with such an uncertain next 12 months ahead um, in particular I think for me and David because we really don't know when we're going to be able to put on concerts again uh, thanks, sorry it was so morose one more thing before before we move on uh, we've got two new Patreons so I want to shout out to KB I, I don't know who you are, you just said your name's KB so thanks and also to Brian Gordon, thank you both for your donations um, hopefully you will continue them for the foreseeable future 
I love it. Uh, like the Matt Hancock, uh, we can pretend that Brian Gordon are actually two Patreons. <laughs> 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 We've got yeah, KB, Brian, and That's Gordon. Yeah. Anyway, see you on the other side. Hi folks, we're still in this weird place where time doesn't really exist anymore and neither do days and, and this week, hopefully, unless something goes terribly wrong, we seem to have fucking cracked it in terms of getting us all in the one place. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, David's here. Yeah, what's really weird is I'm sitting at my old work desk, so I haven't been in here for eight weeks uh, and I came in and the there was like mouldy cups and everything so oh. thankfully that it, it was delayed by an hour Chris because I just spent the time hoovering and tidying this, this <laughs> disgrace of an office up and now I'm sitting here at my desk about to do some real work yeah I mean it's it's not very well you cleaned it up but you know the joke's on you man because you're going to have to clean it up in another two months <laughs> well exactly yeah nothing we're, we're not going to be here for a long time yeah I'm afraid I'm in the same boat uh, but yeah yeah cool how are you guys doing I've been baking a lot since the day before we started. Um, I made some triple chocolate cookies, which are so horribly indulgent and absolutely awesome. I made them yesterday. Great. Um, I'm playing <laughs> a lot of guitar as well, so much that I've got RSI now. So You've got a side swipe in your hair, I know. My hair is He's now so, so much hair. My hair is now so long, and I can't do anything with it that I had to revert to 17 years ago. <laughs> if you weren't sitting down, I'm guessing you'd be doing a crab dance right now. I actually am doing a crab dance every single time I'm listening to EP, yeah. Um, but honestly, look how fucking thick this is. I mean, no one's going to see this, but it's just it's ridiculous. Yeah. Man. It's ridiculous. We'll post a photo. We should post a photo of our current hairdos and maybe our, like, our recording stations at home as well. I've got a country rock mullet. I'm really? getting a mullet I've got Because I've bleached my hair For the first time in my life About two months ago That's growing out You've got Liam Howlett man That's what you've turned into You've turned yeah, into, into like Mid 90s Liam Howlett But <laughs> thankfully My fiance is a hairdresser But we're We're attempting to fair I know But we're <laughs> attempting to uh, Just try some weird shit out With my hair Because Normally I'm very conservative And I just get a uh, just I want my hair a bit shorter, but uh, this time I'm I don't know I'm going to try and grow in a, a terrible bleach mullet. Do a mohawk, goes, please. So. Please do a mohawk. Please <laughs> yeah. do a mohawk. Thankfully, my fiance is a crowd of people. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody wants pierced, by the way, my girlfriend can do that. Because <laughs> she's not going back to work anytime soon either. So. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> wow, you guys have almost got the full beauty cycle sorted. <laughs> like, what should I be looking for in a partner? <laughs> Somebody that can do makeup. nails, nails, <laughs> or nails. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. I'll I'll, I'll add that to the the web page. If you get a partner <laughs> that can do makeup, you can do like kiss makeup on the rig. <laughs> <laughs> if you get a partner, thanks for that vote of confidence, there, Mark. <laughs> I don't think you're going to die in lockdown, mate. But yeah. <laughs> uh, talking about despondency and absolute misery, how did you get on with a week of Dillinger Escape Plan? <laughs> Intense. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's not the way to cure uh, the overarching anxiety of the times, is it? Oh man, no. I mean, it's beautiful and sunny here as well, which doesn't happen so often. And you're walking about, just getting your head pickled by this music. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's one of it's one of the hardest ones we've done, I think, in terms of sustained listening. Right in the world on the floor, you won't be, you won't 
yeah. Just to recap, if you missed this last week, we are doing like a. a spe- have we done this before? So we're no. taking. No, no, we've done a head to head with Trailer Dead, but we've never done a Dylan Sugar. Dylan's just skate past three way, three way, so beautifully. <laughs> threesome. Yeah, a threesome, a Dillinger threesome. So each of us is going to bring a Dillinger skate plan record that we think is unsung and then fight our corner for it. So uh, we'll talk about those records in a bit, but um, Chris, do you want to get us kicked off with who are Dillinger Escape Plan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, uh, Dillinger Escape Plan are a band from, was it Morris Plains in New Jersey? New Jersey. And, uh, New Jersey? I, I just did New Jersey in an Australian accent. <laughs> 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 Sorry, guys. Lack of practice speaking. Um, they, they formed in 1997. Uh, they actually grew out of a, a kind of hardcore punk band called Arcane. They were sort of political hardcore uh, and the three core members of the first version of Dillinger Escape Plan this is a band that went through a lot of members and iterations but uh, Dimitri Minikakis, uh, Ben uh, Wineland Boyman Weinman, sorry. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard his name so many times this week as well, you think I'd know. <laughs> uh, and Chris Penny yep. uh, were the trio that kind of set it up, along with, I mean, at least for the first album, the album that I'll be repping, Brian Benoit mm-hmm. and, uh, well, Adam Dole, but uh, he ended up not actually playing on the album, but we'll get to that. Uh, yeah, so Dillinger Escape Plan... They're gone now, aren't they? What year did they finally tweet? Uh, 2017, I think. 2017, yeah. The last show was New Year's Eve. Yeah, at Terminal 5 in New York City, I believe. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, Arcane, the band that they came from, disbanded originally, and I think this is kind of relevant to the, the story and identity of Dillinger. Um, they disbanded because they became really disillusioned with this sort of... Factionalism of the the hardcore scene in the states at the time, and actually something I really relate to because that sort of early nineties era hardcore, as they put it, you know, everybody was either Christian or vegan or communist or any combination of the above and more. You had Buddhist bands, you had anarchist bands, you had every band was like vying with every other band for a sort of early form of wokeness and political identity and tri- tribalism was a really a big factor in that scene and they said they just found it exhausting. Like it was such hard work uh, just trying to play in a band and not piss somebody off or like bump heads with, with somebody else. So they, they basically gave it up and decided to do something that was musically quite removed but also in it in its own way sort of removed them from the hardcore scene which was quite it's quite narrow it's very i mean we've spoken as before about how mm. you know fiercely loyal hardcore fans are and also how fiercely orthodox they can be about if you stray from the formula too far uh, and what Dillinger Escape Plan did was they strayed really far from the formula mm-hmm. uh, to the extent where they, along with a handful of other bands that will come up uh, in the course of this, basically invented a, an entire new and really uh, fecund style of, of hardcore music, crossover music, uh, that kind of became... I mean, there, there, there's a lot of labels go around them. I mean, Metalcore is one of the most common. Mathcore is another uh, math metal... Yeah, experimental hardcore there's numerous others Dave you want to chip any more into that mix uh, tech jazz core 
tech <laughs> jazz choir. There you go. I didn't even have that one written down. Uh, so they, they kind of started to get become known uh, as as one of these things. As their early music was far more complex than the traditional hardcore, incorporated so many influences from from their youth. I mean, did you guys cycle through? I know they were like into things like King Crimson. Yeah, I mean, like they've definitely got that proggy influence of King Crimson and stuff like that but then like that's why they have such an idiosyncratic style is because they're also into like proper old school death metal like Death and Slayer but then you know technical metal like Meshuga and Cynic And then hardcore like Fugazi, and then classics, you know, like Nine Inch Nails, Radiohead, even. I think OK and Computer was a huge influence on them. I believe and then so. even like uh, Otecra, Aphex Twin, mm-hmm. and then uh, Faith No More as well in terms of melody. and. You know, Mike Patton is somebody that we'll talk about throughout their career, but uh, they just tied so many things from, you know, straight up hardcore, straight up metal, and then they took so many parts of uh, various other genres, all of which were pretty progressive as well. So, yeah, well, one 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 in- one interesting thing we probably should mention is Ben Wyman's love of jazz and jazz fusion as well. You know, mm-hmm. Master yeah. Fusion Orchestra is like one of his biggest influences, and you can hear that through. I mean, we'll probably get into this, but it's probably worth saying now that Ben Wyman is basically the musical mastermind behind all of Dylan's Escape Plan. He's credited as being the sole writer of the music throughout the entirety of the band's career. And so he's got obviously a huge, huge impact on what they sound like and what they continue to evolve into. Mm -hmm. Um, And jazz is clearly a huge part of that. There's an interesting contradiction there, though, because when you watch Ben Weinman's interviews, especially about the early years of the band, he describes himself as the least technical of all the musicians. He said he, he was very much the, the punk rock kid. Uh, totally, there's, there's, yeah. there's a particular interview, I think it's Loudwire, where he kind of plays down his own technical ability. I mean, he was... Yeah, he was he was the, clearly the driving force of the band. He said, but almost everybody else in the band was more technically proficient in one direction or another. A lot of them had studied classically. I mean, actually, at that at that time in the scene, one thing I, I learned as we were researching was that a lot of the drummers that were around were classically trained drummers. I mean, mm-hmm. it, this goes for for Ben from Converge as well, which is a band that will get mentioned later on. There's a number of those bands that were on that scene doing this really experimental, extreme, inventive, hardcore mixed with bits of metal. And they came from like uh, the equivalent of the Conservatoire in Glasgow. They'd studied at these very technical institutions to learn their craft, which is quite unusual, I think. And it's also quite quite a contrast from maybe just 10 years prior when all these bands like Black Flag and Minor Threat and stuff were coming out and these drummers were very raw you know they, they, they were they were self-taught a lot of them and just not very technically gifted it was about energy and they got better as the bands went on quite off, quite a lot of them actually got replaced as the bands got successful and the drummers weren't good enough so I think this movement had a technical grounding uh, especially where it really mattered on things like the drums that a lot of other hardcore and punk movements didn't really have uh, mm-hmm. that enabled them to incorporate all these different things and Ben is actually quite quick to play down how much he was actually capable of doing that he could he could conceptualise the music but he couldn't always necessarily articulate it the way yeah. that he, he wanted to 
obviously that changed clearly as 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 things progressed because he he does become the sole voice of the band like musically anyway. Greg clearly is the a virtual uh, a vocal virtuoso in a lot of ways, or he does become one. His evolution of vocalist throughout with Dylan's Escape Plan is incredible, frankly. Um, but uh, I think they found good partners in each other because I don't think that both of them weren't particularly technically proficient as musicians, but they seemed to work very well together and the people they had around them. Yeah, uh, I mean Ben's probably been a slight, slight false modesty there anyway because we calculate in Infinity as we'll discuss. He played the vast majority of the guitar parts on that album as well mm-hmm. as the bass parts. And it's an incredibly, incredibly complicated and difficult album. Uh, clearly, an amazing musician. Clearly, an yeah. outstanding musician. You know, but he does doff his cap to the people around him, who he says were usually better than him. Uh, yeah. So, their their first ever show was actually uh, with a band called Overcast, who are kind of like seen as kind of godfathers of the metalcore, tech metal kind of genre. They formed in like 1984, disbanded four years later, but I think they reformed in 2008 for a special event. That actually featured two guys you may have heard of, Brian Fair, who's the vocalist in Shadows Fall, I believe, mm-hmm. and Mike D'Antonio from Killswitch Engage, the founder member of the bassist. Uh, but yeah, they were like granddaddies of that scene. Their second ever show, when they still actually weren't called Dillinger Escape Plan, was supporting Earth Crisis, who are a band I don't have a lot of time for, uh, in part because I think their music's boring as fuck, but also because mm. they're incredibly pro-life and incredibly preachy, and exactly the kind of band, I think, that initially turned Dillinger Escape Plan off the, the hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they, they, they adopted the name based on the bank robber John Dillinger. I think it was a friend actually suggested it to them, because he'd, I don't know, he'd been reading about it, and they'd already done shows with a proper name so they decided it was about time uh, they had a guitarist at this point a guy called Derek Brantley who <laughs> in numerous sources it just says they lost touch of them I don't quite know how that happens <laughs> but it's far from the weirdest thing to have happened to the band anyway uh, so when they finally went to record their self-titled EP in 1997 uh, they just recorded it as a quartet um, guitar bass drums vocals and that self-titled EP was re-released actually in the year 2000 with a, a few live tracks on the back of it once the band had actually attained a bit of momentum. It's it's alright. Uh, the, the third track in it, Monticello, is actually pretty good. It's got a really beefy ending on it. It's quite botchy. And it also has moments of like 1995, 96 era refused. The first track, Proceed Precaution, is decent. I liked it at the time, but I was about 16. Uh, it's got a lot of flange on it, <laughs> which is just not uh, an effective Yeah, it doesn't age well, does it? Y- yeah, you don't toss flange of it. It's a bit cheesy, but yeah, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, the original artwork 
on that uh, EP is ghastly as well. It's like some kind of weird doll clown face. Yeah, uh, which we, yeah it was later when it, they re-released it. It's, I think it's like a Valve setup from something. Um, also, on that initial release, it, it, it was a self-titled EP, but it had "It's Okay, We'll Just Kill Her Too" written in very tiny letters down the spine. <laughs> Bit of trivia for you. Um, yeah, I mean, Dillinger Escape Plan, even at this point, were notorious for their feral live shows like really really vicious energetic borderline violent live concerts where they they hurt themselves as much as they hurt the crowd had never uh, stopped or right until the very end yeah i mean that, that that is a feature of the band that they just never got rid of I mean, yeah, like, so they stopped they stopped, the band. they stopped doing certain things because the amount of injuries they were getting and losses that they were getting threatened with but i mean you know when they had to for instance stop doing setting things on fire then then they started running over the crowd and when they stopped throwing guitars about they started throwing themselves about things like that yeah and I mean yeah. th- those are not even close to being the most outrageous things they yeah. did uh, just to, to bring listeners up to speed that are uh, later in their career around about 2002 they played in Reading and uh, Greg is it Picciato? yep Picciato uh, yeah uh, shat in a bag on stage in full view of uh, the Reading audience, and then and this was, they were opening the main stage. Yeah, in the main <laughs> stage in the middle of the daytime, Greg shat in a bag and threw it into the crowd, which is rank. Although it's just yet another moment of Greg Pichetto copying Mike Patton, which we'll come back yes. to. But I just wanted to yeah. get that dig in there. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, he does. He does have. It's interesting. Like that goes along with their entire sort of uh, just a thing that I think kind of defines them is the fact that none of them ever thought that they were going to last as long as they did. Yeah. And that they always just thought that they were at the end of this burst of flames. Like, I, I remember Greg said in an interview that he was just like, there's no way that we're ever going to be playing a festival this size with bands like Puddle of Mud and all this shit ever again. So I want to make some kind of statement, and I'd rather not be allowed to play here again than if we're not going to play here again anyway then I'd rather you know make a statement and get banned from the place so It's also uh, interesting that, that was on the same tour they were supporting System of a Down where they were getting booed pretty much every night because all the new metal kids were like what the fuck is this noise Yeah <laughs> Yeah I was, <laughs> at, I, I was at that I've only got tour. six strings that's disgusting I, I saw them playing uh, with System of a Down and they did take a bit of flack um, Interesting well in fact I don't want to deviate but can we come back to a System of a Down thing because there's an interesting we yeah. fact of it um, they, they went back to Redden in 2016 though I believe uh, where Greg performed sitting on a couch in the middle of the stage drinking <laughs> tea yep <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is also making a statement I think I've maybe told you guys this before but I've got like a personal account uh, or a sort of second hand account um, Rich the drummer from my own band uh, he's a fan of Dillinger Escape Plan especially the drummer uh, Chris Penny at the time and he went to gig in the green in Glasgow uh, to watch them and it was the same day that the Strokes were playing <laughs> and uh, Rich was standing pretty far back from the stage, but he, he was he was amused by how confused the crowd were by this the technicality of this band. So he was really enjoying it, but he's pretty far off from the stage. And this is the the show uh, where Greg's already taken like a heavy based mic stand and launched it at the front of the crowd and had a, like a, a roadie try to go for him. Um, but the drummer, uh, which I'm pretty sure was Chris at this stage, was drinking. I think it was Red Bull, or maybe Monster, or something like that. It was like a heavy can. I think it would be Monster. And he, he slugged it 
and then overarm lobbed it from the drum riser, right? And Rich said he watched he watched the full thing happen because he was watching the drummer, and this can just flew straight towards him. He said it just he just watched it arc through the air, and he actually started to step to the side because it was going to hit him. So him and his brother parted ways, and just as they parted ways, this little boy in a Strokes t-shirt walked past, and the <laughs> oh no, and the can when <laughs> the head and knocked him out. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! I that's, a, that's a metaphor for Dylan. On that uh, lineup, really. No, and so, like, I mean, apart from the fact that they were like initially really worried when the wee guy came round, they were howling with laughter. But (laughs) the the A and E people had to, or the the emergency whatever people had to drag this wee (laughs) unconscious strokes fan away while the Dillinger skate plan kept playing. Um, And my my first hand experience was seeing them at the Cat House, and I don't even know when that would have been. It was a long time ago now. We are. I loved the music, but I had no idea what they were like live. Greg was singing with them, which I was pretty disappointed about, to be honest. Uh, but Ben was unbelievable. I mean, even in the cat house, which isn't the highest of ceilings, he was like running up the drum kit and then running along the tops of two Marshall stacks and down the other side, mm-hmm. like he like he weighed about ten grams. It was it was insane. Like, yeah, I, I saw them. Minimum. I saw them in the liquid rooms in Edinburgh about two, it must have been two thousand four. It was Miss Machine era, so. Uh, uh, yeah, Ben ran over the back of the crowd or over the heads of the crowd up to like the sort of the balcony area, and it was yeah, it's crowd surfing, but you're standing <laughs> on people's heads. <laughs> I mean, it, the whole time he was doing it as well, he had his guitar kind of half behind his head, playing these incredibly technical like parts. I mean, it's just it, it was amazing. It was there was no doubt that it was a big big part of like the band's sort of appeal, like how to really get people hooked on this very challenging music. Um, yeah, so that that first live EP was eh, it's okay. It's so not live EP. That first EP was absolutely fine. It's it's nothing special, and you didn't really get the sense that this band was going to change the world because a lot of bands doing sort of similar thing at the time. Um, they were spotted in 1997 by Nate Newton, who went on to become the bassist in Converge. But at the time, he was in a band called Jesuit. He invited them on tour with Jesuit and Botch, and I think that association starting, especially with the band Botch, it was just key to their identity going forward. Also, they were so prone to injuries that I believe it was around about this time that one member dubbed them the Dillinger Insurance Plan. Yeah, I've got, I've actually got a list here of their five, their five worst injuries. I saw that as well. Yeah, they did. I think one thing that really makes. It really sets Dillinger's skate plan apart And we don't want to spend too much time on them But it's really hard to resist the temptation And I'm sure if we ever do an EP episode There's a very good chance the guys might appear twice They're a band whose entire trajectory Has been changed by two EPs The first of those EPs was uh, Under the Running Board Uh, which came prior to the Calculating Infinity album and was such a musical departure and such a like a short, sharp shock to the, to the scene at the time. And it's short, literally short. I mean, it's a very, very brief uh, record, but it is absolutely brutal. Like, I mean, it's really, really violent, excellent record. Uh, the first track in it, Mullet Burton, two minutes long. Second track, two and a half minutes long, Sandbox Magician, which is the first time you really started to hear these jazz, these technical jazz breaks. 
There's also this awesome outro, this kind of jazzy, mathy outro at about a minute 40 on uh, Sandbox Magician. And then the third track in the EP, which was the end of the original edition of the EP, Abe the Cop, starts slow and then gets absolutely manic. It's got this just insane pub-muted passage and ends with this massive descending riff. That EP really turned a lot of heads. Really, really like set tongues wagging about the band. So they then went on to record uh, Calculating Infinity, which we'll come back to because it's my choice. But Mike Patton was one of the first people to hear this, and I think people actually, because it took a while before their next collaborative thing came out, people assumed that happened later. But it just took ages for them to get Mike Patton's schedule to kind of align with theirs. He heard Calculating Infinity very early on and was a big, big fan. In fact, the band, who were not massively pleased with the album, were quite annoyed that that Mike was so into it. Uh, But uh, basically, he took them out on tour with his project, Mr Bungle, in 1999. Which is another huge step for the band in terms of their... I don't know, their embrace of like incredibly eccentric tendencies uh, and confidence, I guess, you know, if Mike Patton's taking you out on but tour. But also their, also their DIY mentality, because I think they'd always been brought up in that 90s punk DIY scene. Uh, yeah. You know, they did their own merch, design, you know, small road crew and everything. They cite Mike Patton, uh, Mike Patton as both like artistically incredibly influential, but also the way that he did business because he'd mm. come off, you know, playing stadiums in the 90s with Faith No More. But then with Mr. Bungle, he was still traveling around in a wee van, carrying and setting up his own equipment, not having a technician. And they were like sort of really impressed by that as well. So, yeah, he'd be, he'd, he was incredibly influential artistically, but also, yeah, like philosophically as well. Yeah, that's the way Ben always tend to op- always seem to operate. I mean, the band were never on a major label and they always kept things really close to themselves. They were managed by Party Smasher, which is Ben's label. You know, like the, the whole thing was like always run in-house as much as possible, which I think is a true testament to them kind of not giving a fuck and just doing the... T- Plowing their own path, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, around about this time, actually, the guitarist from Jesuit, Brian Benoit, joined the band. Uh, at, so, did a, a new bassist, so they could do live shows. Um, they weren't in the band for very long, although Benoit actually came back for their last ever show at uh, Terminal 5. Like They, they brought a whole kind of uh, catalogue of their, their previous collaborators and members back out for that. Now, Calculating Infinity came out. We'll skip past that because the next noticeable. Of, the next noticeable event is uh, when Dimitri Minakakis leaves in 2001. I absolutely fucking love Dimitri Minakakis in this band, and it's the main. It's it's certainly one of the main reasons that none of the other albums ever came close to calculating infinity for me. The embarked on like a kind of open call for vocalists after Dimitri left because they were they were starting to gain momentum and they didn't want to lose too much time. Uh, there's some really funny stories about the, the submissions they got. One was like rap, one was an obituary-esque sort of death metal, all kinds of various approaches to it. People that didn't even really know the band, they were just like, oh, I thought I'd give this a shot. Uh, and Greg Pichato was the one that really stood out and I believe he'd, he'd submit two versions. Like One was like yeah, of 43%, yeah, 43% burn, percent burn, I think yeah. that was the yeah. instrumental track that they put out. And yeah, he, so he did like a version sort of mimicking Dimitri and then 
did a version, own version just yeah. of his own take mm-hmm. yeah uh, now Dimitri and the band stayed pretty close I mean D- Dimitri joined them was it Miss Machine? no he was on Ironworks he did, he he did sorry, the artwork for Miss Machine yeah Dimitri was on Ironworks for uh, the opening track is it? that's right yeah. and he, he did the artwork for Miss Machine and Option, Option Paralysis, Paralysis. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it was Fix Your Face that he did in Ironworks that's right and he, he played their last two ever shows at Terminal 5 in NYC uh, Dimitri actually joined uh, a band called Argonauts as well with members of a band called Burnt by the Sun Who were another band that I sort of got into around about the same time I got into Dillinger Escape Plan, who I really like, and they have some parallels with them. Uh, and also Municipal Waste, were in the, um, a member of them was in that band. Uh, Dimitri, ironically, does cite one of his main influences as Faith No More, which I think, given that they went on to get Greg Pichetto and the fact that he's very open to criticism of uh, mimicry, uh, is, I don't know, it's kind of weird. Um, Irony is a Dead Scene is the second EP that made a huge, huge difference in, in the trajectory of this band. Two thousand two, it came out. Mike Patton at his absolute best. I mean, this was a year after Tomahawk had been released. So Mike Patton had already this sort of new incarnation. He was experimenting with a lot more kind of staccato stuff in his voice. Some of it was very, very harsh and aggressive. This was that taken even further. I mean, it's not a lot of tunes on it. We're all probably quite familiar with the cover of Come to Daddy that closes it, which is superb. Hollywood Squares, the opening track, uh, I think the vocals immediately show how Patton's sort of dynamism really extended the potential of the songs uh, that the band had within them, this potential to write things that were a little bit more catchy and less simply furious. Um, there's a the rock, paper, scissors, whispered stereo panning thing at the end of that, it's just fucking brilliant. <laughs> Latin uh, is an, a legendary riff for, for, for fans of this band uh, and the vocals as well the way they, they, they snap in and out matching that guitar mute Also, there's a bit at the end of that as well which is kind of like over the top gothy sort of slightly phantom of the opera which yeah, is carnival-esque sort of vibes yeah. yeah and it's incredibly hooky and I think it was the first time they'd really been hooky um, when good dogs do bad things the third track in that IP for me is simply the template for the rest of the band's career Furious. It's got some incredible like highs and lows with the vocals. It's mm-hmm. it's just it, it's a slightly more 
um, tempered version of calculating with just a few other kind of more catchy elements that allowed people to get a foothold because that's the thing with the early Dillinger skate plan thing you just felt like you were sliding down a cliff, lay, uh, yeah. a cliff face getting your skin shredded by all the rocks there was nowhere to really stick your toe in and just stop yeah. it was very very hard to get to grips with their stuff early on but Irony is a Dead Scene is just such a massive uh, turning point in the band's uh, career what I think is interesting though is that Pucciato had already been in the band for a year when that came out and in fact the, the, the EP for that reason the EP almost wasn't released now it came out in Epitaph and Buddyhead Buddyhead was the label of the guys from Icarus Line mm. which was big for a while there's a couple of really funny stories about Buddyhead actually they were a really irreverent bunch of dudes um, but the album almost didn't the, the EP almost didn't come out because the band were concerned about the fact that Pichetto was now established they didn't necessarily want to you know muddy the waters about him being their vocalist by releasing this thing with Patton but the label were so enthused by the recording that they really kind of pressed for it to be released and obviously that had a big big impact not just on the band but I would I would I would suggest on Pichetto as well and that I think is obvious when you go on to discuss their next album Miss Machine um, I would query how many of the songs in Miss Machine were actually written prior to them witnessing the reaction to the Patton EP because it seems like there's tracks on this machine that are almost quite true to Calculating Infinity but then there's maybe like five or certainly four or five maybe even six that seem to come from a very different place from a kind of post irony as a dead scene era of this band where Pucciato's decided I'm gonna I'm gonna go for that style of my vocals I'm not gonna try and do the Dimitri thing and I think things really change now, Dave that's that's your album so we'll yeah we'll talk come, about it because we'll I mean it's five it. years since Calculating Infinity came out they've had various lineup changes and they are inherently a band that want to push themselves and do different things so we'll yeah mm. we'll, we'll chat about Miss Machine uh, around about this time actually talking uh, I said we'd come back to that System of a Down thing this is uh, around about well they, they toured with System of a Down at this era they toured with Slipknot they toured with Megadeth I remember on one of the System of a Down tours that they did um, hearing that this is the first time I actually found out about the whole phenomenon of buying your way onto tours and the band just like maxed out credit cards and bankrupted themselves uh, specula- speculatively trying to sort of secure this tour in the hope that it was going to be their big break they had a lot vested in this moment of their of their life you know they were they were writing stuff that clearly had more hooks in it and they thought this is our opportunity to sort of reach a much wider audience and yeah and I just thought it was a little bit disillusioned not I understand why they did it I understand it's now a common feature of it I think I was more disillusioned maybe with System of Down than I was with Dillinger Escape Plan but that is something that then once I'd seen that I started to find out about bands buying onto tours right left and centre even not even particularly big tours you know just getting into massive financial debt just and it's weird that it happens in heavier music more than pop music Mm -hmm. yeah it is it is it seems to become quite a feature of the sort of touring metal scene and especially of the how can you put it kindly oh fuck putting it kindly especially the people that are past it especially of the bands like Helmet and bands like that who are inviting bands to buy onto their tours and these bands are clearly over the hill doing not a lot of new stuff that's very exciting and they're using their status to sort of get their tours paid for all their kind of overheads paid for by these ambitious and maybe enthusiastic young bands that are fans of their earlier work it's it's pretty cynical um yeah, and a, a whole series of injuries plagued the following tours around this uh, this time as well. In 2006, they put out a plagiarism EP, it's called Plagiarism, uh, featuring covers of Nine Inch Nails, Soundgarden, Massive Attack, Justin Timberlake. Because we're here 
classic. Well, this is once again them. You know, they uh, they wanted to show that they were more open minded than the, the the metal community. That it's okay to listen to other music. Well, that's um, the thing. I've interviewed Ben twice from old podcast, and not only was he adamant about the fact the band was definitely dead after this because he had a tattooed on him. The 2017 was like the end day, and he's like, "I'm fucking. If we get back together, I'm going to be absolutely really annoyed about that." <laughs> also, his body can't take it anymore because he needs like so much surgery. But he was also saying that the thing that always drove Dylan Just Get Plan for him was like not just doing the things that people don't expect him to do, but also doing the things that their fans don't expect him to do. Mm-hmm. You know, always taking a band in a slightly different direction. Never really tried to do the same thing twice. I think that's the reason why I like all of the records. Like I'm, I might be the only person on this episode that likes all of their albums and all of their output from end to end. I don't think they made a bad record. Um, but that's one of the reasons why I always admired him as a player as well because he, he just the band were always open to doing whatever. But as long as it was not the same as the last thing, you know, and I think that's pretty cool. Well, it's maybe it's maybe a good juncture to actually just very quickly talk about metalcore, mathcore, and maybe kind of try and uh, identify that a little bit. Um, metalcore, the prehistory of it, is often attributed to the Black Flag album My War. Which is a, a, an, an album that's sort of, it gets a critically mixed reaction. Um, but it's the side B specifically where they really slowed down, became heavy and sludgy. And a lot of the punk kids that were listening to punk rock at that time didn't really spend much time with slower tempo metal-ish. I don't say metallic because it wasn't metallic, but like stuff that was hinting towards that. That, that My War album, along with bands uh, also kind of on the LA scene like St. Vitus... to kind of cross those boundaries a wee bit and for the first time you had like hardcore meeting metallic influences Uh, and I think that whole era of Black Flag is significant for this because it's an era that sort of people generally are a bit lukewarm about but whether or not you know it's maybe actually a candidate for this podcast because whether or not you think it's an amazing album the the ripples of that album and that era are are huge because then going into the 90s you had all these sort of experimental punk bands coming out um I think bands that are particularly relevant to uh, Dillinger's Skate Plan would be uh, Drive Like Jehu. From San Francisco or San Diego, San Diego maybe. Uh, Jesus Lizard, obviously, especially because of the dissonant guitar stuff. Uh, and today's the day. bands like that that were on Amphetamine Reptile along with Helmet and Neurosis and, and acts like that. Really caustic and they weren't traditionally metal, they were really hard to categorise, they were part of this new genre like noise rock um, which actually became pretty broad and included like Melvins and, and still in, like, Sonic Youth as well could be noise rock but there were acts within that that came from a much more le- like legitimately punk background and, and these are the bands that ultimately 
brought us to the point of what I would say are like the big four of like experimental hardcore, which was Botch, We Are the Romans, which we've covered, Converge, Jane Doe, which we've covered. I would suggest Calculating Infinity, or at least at that at that point, uh, by Dillinger, and The Shape of Punk to Come by Refused, and the, those four albums each contributed to this sense of like shift along with bands like at the driving and stuff like that that started to come through there was a big sense of like punk shaking off its kind of orthodoxy and and just broadening the the possibilities of the genre um more specifically and truer to the kind of metalcore and mathcore kind of label around about that time there were acts like uh, Dillinger actually toured a band called Drowning Man who were prone to having the longest fucking track names in the world yeah. um, did they tour them? no sorry they did a split EP with them not a tour The band Dead Guy, who in particular I think their their vocalist, who's conveniently named Tim Singer, at least their original (laughs) vocalist. was a big influence on Dimitri Minakakis. Uh, there's a band called the Jean-Michel Vincent Car Crash, which is, the, in case you don't know it, the guy who was the pilot in Airwolf. Um, there's Jean-Michel Vincent. That's <laughs> a Rick and Morty thing. Craw. Uh, or another one Kill Switch Engage early Kill Switch Engage uh, the band Coalesce who were a little bit more chest beaty but still significant at this point uh, a, a really crucial band's Dazzling Killmen who are very overlooked and who I'd love to put forward specifically not their Albini kind of produced first album which is very good but their second album Face of Claps which is so ugly and took that early stuff away from the sort of alt rock much closer to like this acerbic post-hardcore sound this really really vicious sounding record and I think played a big part in influencing the likes of Ben Weinman Uh, and also bands like Bitch Magnet um, their album in 1990 Ben Hart sort of similarities to Slint it's pre-Slint or at least pre-Spiderland but it was one of the first really math rock records along with bands like Don Caballero and stuff like that that were starting to come out Um, you guys know a lot more than me about where metalcore and math metal and mathcore went Um, I mean probably the most the purveyor of it I like the most nowadays is probably Rolla Tomasi but I know there's loads loads more yeah, there are a lot of bands like that. I mean, influences started to come in from like a lot of the thrash and death metal bands as well, which is why metalcore became pseudo melodic death metal almost. You know, mm. so like bands like Darkest Hour and God Forbid and all that were starting to take the Swedish guitar influences and yeah, they basically they sort of melded this sort of vibe with At the Gates basically.
Yeah, more or less, yeah. Um, and pretty much every single riff from uh, Sort of the Soul, which we've done, uh, is on 99% of metalcore records that exists from like 2000 onwards. Um, and yeah, so there was a lot of that stuff. And then I suppose a big thing which I think a lot of people overlook is like, Meshuggah are a huge influence. Yeah, in many ways. I, like, I was actually... So I was speaking to my cousin Ian, DJ partner, and also very proficient drummer in about 35 bands in Glasgow. Uh, and he's, like, Dillinger, a massive influence on him. And, yeah, he, he, he talks about Dillinger, and uh, specifically Chris Penny. You can hear a lot of Mashuga in it, but they, they don't swing that much. And, like, Ian thinks, like, they're quite aware of trying not to sound too much like Mashuga. Because they know if they went too proggy or too heavy, then they'd end up just sounding like Mashuga a lot of the time. So it's like mm-hmm. taking that away and only swinging it on the Latin jazzy bits, and you know, s- sticking ahead of the beat and you know, straight when they're going fast and heavy. And one of my favourite more recent mathcore bands, I suppose, is the Armed. Just as chaotic live as Dillinger Escape Plan. I've seen them in the Hugging Pint last year, mm-hmm. and they are they are they are an incredible band. Their first album is going to be on this podcast at some point because it is truly truly brilliant. You mentioned the arm because I think the arm sound a lot, also a lot like Genghis Tron, who then yeah. take a lot from Dillinger Escape Plan. Also, like we should mention the fact that pretty much Britain's biggest stadium rock band now, uh, Bring Me the Horizon, yeah. <laughs> started as basically a Dillinger Escape Plan tribute act that couldn't play their instruments. Yep. So, you know, when you try and cover one of the most technical bands in the world and you can't play your instruments, there's only so much you can do. But, I mean, they certainly tried it. Mm-hmm. And then they got really wealthy out of their T-shirt business, so well done them. <laughs> there's definitely an argument as well that I think Dillinger Escape Plan were one of the main influences on that kind of generation of kind of gonzo hardcore bands that came out that spans everything from, like, Lightning Bolt and The Locust... Like early daughters through an albatross, yep. roots, uh, even like take a worm for a walk week, the Glaswegian uh, Glass act. No, 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 no. 
really extreme, short, sharp, highly technical, very confusing <laughs> most of the time very confusing tracks that took a lot of parsing. Like you had to sort of like listen to them a number of times before you really even started to pick out what was musically happening in them. And part of the joke was with those bands or the Gonzo bands is that the songs were so short, you know, like ten seconds, thirty seconds, forty seconds, things like that. You didn't even give you a chance to try and get to grips with it. Uh, Dillinger obviously weren't doing that, but they were sort of Dillinger's sort of Dillinger's like extremity taken to another even more absurd extreme. Um, yeah, so picking up where we left just prior to that wee departure, uh, Ironworks came out in 2007. Now we've got two albums in a row here that none of us chose, which is not to say that they're not good albums. Uh, but a big thing happened before Ironworks, of course, was that their drummer Chris Penny left. Yeah, well, yeah. I was. Uh, well, the thing is, it it didn't. But it kind of happened before Ironworks. It happened as they were prepping the album Ironworks. He yeah. left, and they were. That was part of why they were so miffed, and yeah. it, it led to Ben Weinman starting drum programming drums for for months and months to try yeah. and keep the momentum going. Penny yeah. and Weinman had started to have a bit of an acrimonious relationship, supposedly on tour for the last few years. That the other members had seen it coming a long way off. Uh, so eventually, he he departed. The label weren't pleased with the notice that he gave them. He joined Coheed and Cambria. <laughs> yeah, joined, Jesus. Co- joined Coheed and Cambria for their fourth record, uh, No War for Tomorrow. And due to the contractual thing, he wasn't actually able to play the drums that he'd written on on that record. He wasn't actually able to. He wasn't actually able to record them, despite the fact he'd written them. God, so talk the, about so a step down, man. So so they called, he was, Dave, he was cup tied. They called I know, it was Hawkins, dreadful. Right? Do you know what? I think that was the same year that Andrei Shevchenko left AC Milan and went to uh, Chelsea. So uh, like. I, it was like the same thing like two of my favourites leaving to go to absolute shit <laughs> my, my favourite thing about this though is like they called Taylor Hawkins who came in and recorded his exact drums on that record it's just a totally strange thing I mean that doesn't make me like Coheed and Cambria anymore I mean I, I'm not a huge not, I'm not a huge fan of them either but it's a, it's a totally strange like Relapse wouldn't let him record so mm. they had to get somebody for hire to come in and play his exact drums <laughs> so yeah, relapse just wouldn't take the cuffs off. Um, so uh, he was eventually replaced by a guy called Gil Sharon uh, after Ben had spent some time, as we say, programming the drums. Ironworks went on to become like their most kind of critically successful album. It made a lot of top ten lists, and it saw some people dub them uh, the Radiohead of metalcore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was like in that era when like any band that went slightly out of their own the confines of their own genre, they were going, "Oh, that, you're like the Radiohead of drum and bass. Oh yeah, they're like the Radiohead of jazz fusion." Like, oh, fuck Pink, off! Pink Floyd were the Radiohead slightly of the 70s. progressive. <laughs> Um, where do you guys stand on that album? I think it's for me. It's it's where Dillinger Escape Plan start to coalesce as a unit for the first time. Like musically, they start to fully, in a cohesive sense, put together a record which incorporates all the influences they've been hinting at. The bits of electronica, the bits of industrial, the faith no more. It all sounds a little bit more together on this record, which is a criticism that I have. It like the Miss Machine doesn't sound as together. That being said, I don't think all the songs on it are. Are that strong? I think the singles are great. Obviously, Milk Hazard is a fucking smashing tune. It's the most pop, probably the most poppy thing they've done since Black Bubblegum's pretty. Cool. Yeah, yeah, the two of them are like. Yeah, they did. They bit- did that in like Conan O'Brien or something like that. Yeah. Daddy, see yourself. Daddy, 
Black Bubblegum's really interesting and we'll probably talk about that uh, when we talk about Calculating Infinity but see the there's a track on that which is basically the exact same as this song but as instrumental on Calculating Infinity um, and then a couple other good songs I think 82588 is a good rager Party Smasher's great Deadest History's pretty cool too um, This is the point where I realised because it was still kind of up in the air after Miss Machine, which I'd I'd bought as well, like with kind of great anticipation, but I had very mixed feelings about it. Um, and I realised that this wasn't a band I was going to be into anymore. Uh, at, at this stage, they I think they saw where they wanted to go. Certainly, Greg had decided what he was going to try and do, and it was just not something I needed in my life. Albeit. I think it's really well done. I think uh, the tracks are really well written. I think that some of the furious parts are furious as fuck, and some of the tuneful parts are really well, uh, you know, well, really well considered. Um, I think it's a milk lizard. I find a wee bit reminiscent of like the Bronx or something that doesn't really. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of that. Um, I can see why though. It, it was a kind of attempt to break through. I, I just know a lot of Dillinger Escape Plan fans are massive, massive fucking fan of this record, and it's. Yeah, it's going to rub some up the wrong way if I shit on it too much. I, it's, an, it's an important album for them. It's an important album for them, but like for me, I, I'm going to be honest, Dillinger Escape Plan are one of my favourite all-time bands, but I only ever listened to their first two records. <laughs> um, I think with Ironworks, there's something about it is just slightly cold. There's something about the mastering and the compression in it that's taken a little bit out of the top end and it's just compressed a bit too metal for me. Like, I mean, it's much more processed product. I mean, like, and Miss Machine, there is, we'll talk about this, there's a lot more naivety, and it was starting to go by this point because they had a much stronger sense of identity, which to some people is definitely a plus, but to me, they were losing something in that sense of identity because they were making decisions that I no longer really felt yeah, very, I also, I, very sincere. I also, I also think that they definitely miss Chris Penny. Chris Penny, yeah. Um, yeah because, yeah. like, to me, I think he's a hugely vital part of making the band sound technical but energetic and punk at the same time he's got that looseness Mm -hmm. that you know Ben Collar and like my favourite drummers are technically hugely proficient but still have that looseness and freedom to it Dillinger from here on in lacked that slightly like they still had really excellent drummers but I just think his creativity was a huge part of what made them special. The, the funny I, thing is, I've heard super fans of Dillinger say that the the drum performance on Option is probably their favourite drum performance. That's, that's that's well, technically, um, yeah, technically, I don't I, like it's incredible, but I, it's, there's something about the energy yeah, that I mean, he gives the whole band that I prefer on the first two records. No argument here. Like I, I feel Dillinger by this point are like I said, they lost me. I, but yeah, I was very aware that my friends who I had a lot in common with musically were even more into them. So uh, uh, yeah, like in considering my choice of the album, I had to really kind of analyse my own opinions on that. I mean, how do you I, guys feel about Option Paralysis? Which well, came can I just say uh, from here on in, we'll talk about uh, one of us is the killer, but like. They've got four records that I think I can't remember when we talked about it. It might have been on the Deftones episode, but basically it's the point at which a band start producing records that other musicians could create if they listened to, 
you know, if you gave some really brilliant musicians the first two Dillinger Escape uh, Escape Plan records and said, "All right, take everything from those two records and make a new record out of it," then I think you could come up with any of the first the the next four records. I think they just sound like Dillinger Escape Plan. You know, with nothing new. Whereas the they're first real, two records, I don't think any other band in the world could have done that because they're making decisions that are out of tune with the process. Yeah, you're I do both, agree you're that they're both completely l- wrong. You're both completely well, wrong. I, the, <laughs> the, the, the four albums in question, yeah, definitely have a consistency across them that is enviable for, for other bands. You know, like enviable, and that all of them are good records. They're all well, well executed records. That doesn't mean they set me on fire, but they all also have a consistency yet a variety that it still sounds like this band but as Dave says I think there's a there's just an edge that is something that set them apart that je ne sais quoi thing that is just gone at this point but Mark I know you're going to push back and that's fine um yeah, so they left Relapse prior to Option Paralysis and decided to start their own label, which is Party Smasher Inc., which I guess Ben was the head of, because he's the head of most of these Still things is, I'm talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. They toured for like nine weeks on the, the on the rotation for that album with Deftones. They did a tour in Mastodon, did another tour with System of a Down shortly after. Option Paralysis, I think, is decent. Yeah, I mean, I think like a couple of tracks that stood out were the third and the fourth. some really great weird moments uh, like around about one minute uh, there's this like frantic kind of techie unsettling part um, but for me it is them really getting into the realms of like aping Mike Patton uh, in a way that it just becomes uncomfortable uh, it, it starts to it doesn't seem like he's stretching his vocals it seems like he's he's found his sweet spot which is just to be the Mike Patton in this band uh, the Crystal Morning definitely starts like a calculating infinity tune but is then and kind of slightly underpinned with a riff like a kind of hookier riff that was never really present on Calculating Infinity and again that, that in turn provides a kind of level of accessibility which I don't know whether you like it or not It just this at this point it, the music's just not as extreme because they are providing those accessible moments and I'm kind of, by this point I'm really fucking sick of of hearing people comparing, especially Operation, uh, sorry, especially Option Paralysis to calculate an infinity it's just oh they've recaptured it's like no I'm sorry they've not like I get it that some of the riffs are are the same you know coming from the same place but the sheer level of ferocity and the feeling like you need to take two steps back it's not there anymore that's it's just not got that absolute shock to the system factor that that calculating has and then 2013 we'll swing by it because Mark's obviously going to go into more detail but they have One of Us is the Killer which uh, leads us on to I guess ultimately their final record Dissociation um, in 2016 which I believe was actually kind of they started to rebuild early 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 demos into some of these tracks like they took some of the demos that had been kicking about since the very very first album and started mm-hmm. to use them as the basis for these new ideas uh, they also a lot of like weird shit happened to the band around this time. Like they had a very bad coach crash in the the tour uh, cycle after Dissociation was released. Their driver had fallen asleep. It, it was very nearly a fatal accident. 
it led to Greg having like mental health issues, anxiety and uh, hypochondria and things like that. One of the members had to start playing in a back brace. Uh, Greg ended up with like torn muscles that he didn't get properly looked at, which became a problem in the long run. The album has some really good moments. I think that, that opening track, Limerent Death, is a really interesting song. It doesn't sound... The intro is not very Dillinger Escape Plan, but it's, it's, it's really good. There's a lot of early noise rock, early 90s noise rock in the opening segment. Bits of like, it's almost like a kind of weird at the driving he bounced to it as well. And then the ending of the track, after a bit of the kind of more typical Dillinger sound, goes back into this kind of 90s bass led noise rock thing. Symptom of Terminal Illness, the second track, is just way too big and croony for me. It's just. Fucking it's love it. The, it's, it is the pattern pastiche taken is such a ridiculously plagiaristic extent that it's just for somebody that grew up listening to Phantom Ass especially which is a lot more in common with Dillinger's Escape Plan than Mr Bungle it just is so it's such a poor copy of, of what Patton did for a long time it, it, became, it was really off-putting and I think I had to recover from that on this album because there are still good moments I think uh, I don't know how to even say it Wanting Not So Much To As To the third track yeah. has some really interesting kind of early Daughters vibes to it The fourth track is going back to that sort of drum and bass thing that they do in Calculate Infinity a couple of times. Um, and I think uh, Manufacturing Discontent has some great, choppy, nasty, like really hideous vocal moments in it. It's a really varied album and it's got some really cool ideas but it's not massively intimidating uh, it ends with a bit of a denouement and I really the, the Mike Patton moments fuck me off so much in it that it's become so it just is by this point it's just become really grating yeah I think uh, I think Greg's voice is at his best on this record I almost picked this one I really like Lowfields Boulevard because it's just it's properly mental at the end with all the strings and stuff like that it's fucking cool Circle's pretty nice as well um, But I didn't go with that I would definitely say Option Paralysis Is the bottom of my list Of, of Dillinger releases It's like the, the bottom album for me This one I think Would probably be In the mid bit bang, Smack bang in the middle um, I think it's a good record I think all the records are good though So I'm obviously completely biased David, who do you stand on this one? Um, yeah, it never hooked me in uh, I mean It sounds like Dillinger Escape Plan Sounding like Dillinger Escape Plan which is cool, but it's not what I want from them. Weirdly, I, I actually think that's really accurate. I think you're right. It does sound like them sounding like them, and it feels like the last four 
albums were a process of them trying to refine sounding like themselves, especially as I mentioned that uh, when good dogs do bad things from the Irony is a Dead Scene EP, it just seems like they're trying to refine that very simple formula for the last four records of their career with varying degrees of success yeah I, I find that a wee bit uninspiring albeit there's some really thrilling moments but they're thrilling moments that exist in the context of more exciting overall songs and, and records earlier on I think uh, yeah cool um, so I think that's a pretty fair summary of the bits of the catalogue that we are not going to expand on further so it's probably a good time to hit this episode on the head, I think. Just just for now. <laughs> it could get just, pretty just hefty. For now. Yeah. So I've got a feeling we're going to, like, butt heads on this uh, album-to-album <laughs> segment. I mean, we're, we'll obviously refer back to these, I'm sure, because there are consistencies between different records. But, uh, yeah, I can I can understand, actually, why we didn't pick any of these albums, having listened to the... Well, I'd already knew Miss Machine, but having listened to One of Us is the Killer as well, Mark, I do think you've picked the right album out of the last four. Uh, I'll mm-hmm. give you that. Um, you just didn't pick the right album out of the six. we <laughs> <laughs> <We'll> see. <laughs> okay, so, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week, and we'll have our next eye. When we well. have our threesome. Oh, our yeah. one. Finally, the long-awaited threesome. <laughs> the gloves and pants are off. For Social the distancing, get to fuck. <laughs> <laughs>